I'm going to share with you what I honestly believe is one of the most uh, practical um, portions and chapters in the entire Bible. While you're turning there, let me fill you in just a little bit on uh, what we've been going through up there in Flagstaff. Um, I'm not going to spend much time on it. There's hardly anything more dangerous than asking a man who's had heart surgery about his heart surgery. Um, That would be two or three messages, and anybody who's had anything like it knows exactly what's going on. Uh, But just basically, I I was born with a genetic heart defect, didn't know about it until I got into my late 40s, started running short of breath. I just thought I was out of shape. Just thought, you know, time's catching up with you. Over more time, uh, and I spent some time down here at uh, the Galveston UTMB, Uh, they almost gave me a new heart valve there, and at the last minute decided not to. We took that as the Lord's leading in that area, and uh, it definitely turned out to be that way. They put me on some medication, and for three or four years, I really was doing well. I felt like I was in my 30s again, uh, lost a bunch of weight, uh, and you tend to get serious about that kind of stuff when you have heart problems. And uh, then just a few months ago, um, we, we knew it was coming. Um, my wife was doing all the driving. Uh, I couldn't uh, hardly walk down the hallway in our home, but we had purchased some insurance, and it didn't start until March 1st. And so we were doing everything we could to hold out till March 1st. Um, to say the least, that didn't happen. I collapsed in our home, and uh, if Leora hadn't been there, I probably wouldn't be here now. Uh, we call, she called the EMTs and uh, took me to the hospital. Um, when I got there, my, for those of you who know, uh, your blood level is supposed to be about 14 on the hemoglobin count. Mine was down to 5. I only tell you that because the EMT said... Usually we only see that level when somebody's been gunshot. <laughs> so uh, they were surprised that I was alive. Uh, to make it just very quickly, the Lord worked. There was a man there, cardiologist, who had once been one of the nationally ranked cardiologists, decided he wanted to live in a small town, so he moved to Flagstaff. He recruited a man for his team who was an uh, intern at John Hopkins University. Both of them looked at my condition and said, we know exactly what this is. Uh, we've seen it before. Um, this, the uh, surgeon is one of the few people who've actually operated on it before. Uh, they replaced the heart valve. Uh, in the old days, that was mechanical or um, porcine, pig. Now they have bovine, cow. And so, of course, in honor of that, I no longer eat hamburger. Uh, that'd be kind of like cannibalism, I think. <laughs> no, not really. If you've got barbecue, invite us over. I'll be right there. Uh, these are supposed to last longer, and I'm hoping that's the case. After this, um, it has to be a mechanical valve that's placed in, and then you have to go on blood thinners for the rest of your life. So I can avoid that, and for perhaps 15 to 30 years, depending on how active I am and how good a job they did, I don't have to worry about it. So I'll be an old man by then. I'll be up in Brother Stone's age category. <laughs> but actually, I'll be older than that. Um, but the Lord really blessed, put the right people in the right place, we were able to get uh, coverage that actually worked retroactively. Um, and so they covered us all the way back to February 1st um, and covered the bills. Now, we'll still have massive bills, but I'm no longer looking at uh, close to half a million dollars in medical bills, which is what we would have been looking at. And so the, the Lord really blessed, took care of us, and uh, it has put a uh, big dent in our, our work up there. We had just got to the point where we're looking at property, We both had part-time jobs and then could take the support that you folks and many other churches are giving to us into a building to rent. 
rent is very high in Flagstaff. It's a tourist town, a university town, and so it tends not to have a lot of vacant buildings. And so we were just at that point. I started making phone calls. When this happened, I, of course, lost my uh, part-time job. I was uh, delivering bread at the time, which was, uh, had a nice benefit of being able to take home um, all the bread that I wanted, which probably wasn't good for your heart condition when you think about it. Um, but that's been put on hold. And so we're just seeking the Lord's will, and he'll open the door. He always has. He's been there every time we've needed him. I have no doubts about that. We would love to stay in Flagstaff. There's a great need for an independent Baptist church there, and we're just going to let him lead in that. I may have one more surgery, uh, this same uh, genetic deformity that caused the um, heart valve to be deformed also caused my aortic arch to be deformed. Most people's aortic arch comes out of their heart, runs to their lungs. It's about, I don't know, six inches long or so. Mine's about a foot and a half long. It runs way up into my shoulder, twists, turns. It has all kinds of swellings on it. Uh, the first time they looked at it, they thought they were aneurysms and rushed me to the hospital. It's not that serious, but they would like to bypass that, put a stent in it, and make it a regular size. Um, you know in the movies when somebody gets shot in the shoulder and they just keep going? Well, in my case, if you shot me in the shoulder, I'd just die right there. So anyway, it's, uh, that's how bad it is or how different it is. So we thank you for your prayers. Um, whatever you make of Facebook for all the bad things that are on in there, uh, there is nothing quite like being in the hospital and having hundreds, um, you know, thousands perhaps of people not just saying they're praying for you but posting it on a Facebook post. Uh, it is humbling and it is joyful at the same time. And it is just something that, again, you always know people are praying for you, but when you see it and when you hear them say that we're praying for you and God bless you and, and all those things... It's just amazing. And so for some of you who did those postings and some of you who prayed but couldn't post, we sincerely, sincerely thank you. And uh, again, the Lord bless and bless the work here. Um, it's just a joy to be back. It's a joy to be playing harmonica again. That's the first time I've played that much harmonica since my heart problems and uh, I was a little out of breath. So we'll see how the sermon goes. All right, Romans chapter 6. Let me begin by telling you a little story about a man who uh, took his dog to the uh, veterinarian. Uh, took it into the vet, and uh, he wasn't sure what was wrong with him. The vet looked at the animal and said, well, it's pretty clear. Uh, your dog's dead. And the man said, oh, no, that just can't be. I've, I've had this dog forever. This is my sole companion in life. I want a second opinion. He said, well, okay, I can, I can get you a second opinion. So he steps out, comes back in. He has a cat with him. He puts the cat on the table. The cat walks around the dog a few times, sniffs a little bit, and then jumps off the table, goes in the corner, puts its paws over its eyes. The uh, veterinarian said, that's your second opinion. Your dog's dead. He said, I cannot accept this. I just can't accept this. You don't know what this animal means to me. I'd like a third opinion. He said, well, okay, we can get you a third opinion. He stepped outside. He brings back in a Labrador. The Labrador retriever puts its paws up on the table, sniffs the other dog, which is dead, and it does the same thing the cat does. Goes to the corner, covers its eyes, and he says, there it is, dead. So the man said, well, I, I've got to believe it. I've just got to accept it. It's terrible. It's a, it's a terrible loss in my life, but I accept it. How much do I owe you? And he said, well, that's $1,050. And he said, $1,050 just to tell me my dog's dead? And he said, no, it's just $50 for the office visit, but it's 500 for the CAT scan and 500 for the lab work. <laughs> Now, 
Uh, I wish mine had been that cheap, actually. That would have been a bargain (laughs) by all means. The man had a problem with unbelief. He could not believe what was happening. And though Christians are saved and though we have entered into this relationship with Jesus Christ through faith, I don't think I'm telling you anything new or revolutionary or shocking to say that Christians have a problem with unbelief. We have a problem translating everything in our lives into this area of faith. We need to be like the man whose son was possessed of a demon when he took him to the apostles and the Lord said, these things only come out through great prayer and great faith. And the man said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. We have to understand that that we operate in both those realms and will operate in both those realms as long as we are physical beings in a physical world. There's no other way around it. And so we're going to be dealing with this battle between faith and unbelief throughout our entire lives. And especially does this come into bearing when we look at the faith or the battle against sin that we're going to see in Romans chapter 6. Now, Romans is Paul's magnus opus. It is his by far, most thorough and his greatest writing, meant to instruct people he wasn't sure that he was going to instruct personally. So he filled it with details on just about everything in the Christian life, a little bit of eschatology, a little bit of what was going to happen to Israel, but especially how to live the Christian life. Uh, Chapters 1 through 3 deal with this reality that all are condemned under sin. No one, not the Jew, not the moral Gentile, no one is, is free from sin and therefore we're all condemned. Chapters 4 and 5 deal with salvation by grace, justification through faith. He uses Abraham as an example. And then once we get through a chapter 5, and this is how to be saved, how we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he comes to chapter 6 and he begins dealing with how now to live. How do we deal with the battle of the Christian life? Romans chapter 6 is victory over sin. Romans chapter 7 is victory over the law. Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, and, and you know that's, <laughs> that applies to a lot of things. Romans chapter 8 is super victorious in Christ. Uh, You can't think of a greater title than to be super victors in Jesus Christ. And I want to share with you Romans chapter 6 this evening. Let's look at the first 10 verses. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And the first thing that we're going to see is that we must know something. We must know something if we're going to have victory over sin. Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Paul writes, and he begins by asking a question, shall we continue in sin? Now that question arises naturally from chapter 5 in which he says you're justified by faith without works. 
And so there were people, there might be people who would ask, well, then why don't I just keep on sinning and then just keep repenting and just be keeping, just keep saved again? I just keep going in this cycle and I don't ever have to worry about it. Paul says, how shall, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Can I just keep sinning that God would just keep forgiving? And he uses this term, God forbid. In the Greek, this is a double negative. Unlike English, when you have a double negative in the Greek, it means absolutely not. There is no way you should even consider this. This is the strongest negative that's found in the Greek language. And the King James translators put it this way because it comes across with great emphasis. God forbid that people who have tasted of grace should want to continue in sin. And then he begins talking about why this is so foolish and why this would be wrong and the great dangers involved with it. He says... He goes back to them, what they should know. He says, he uses the word know or knowing three times in this single paragraph. In verse 3, he says, know this, we are baptized into Jesus Christ, and therefore we are baptized into his death. In verse 6, he says, knowing our old man is crucified with him. Verse 9, he says, knowing that the resurrected Christ dies no more, death hath no more power over him. So Paul is saying you must realize and believe that your acceptance of Jesus Christ means this. You are in him. And he says the way you should understand this is by baptism. Baptism is a symbol of you being placed in Christ, identifying with his death, dying to sin, and being risen again. That baptism of death also looks forward to us being in his resurrection. We are and we must know that we are in Jesus Christ. Our old man, our former sin for nature, that thing that was under the control of Satan is crucified with Christ that we may no longer serve sin. Now, I'm going to just give you a couple of verses. If you have real nimble fingers, go ahead and look them up. But you know these verses, especially Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live by faith I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 has the same echo, almost a parallel passage. But it talks about circumcision. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In putting off the body of sins of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. This is what I must believe. This is what I must understand. If I am ever to have a true victory over sin, then these are the things that must be the foundation of the knowledge that I live as a child of God. We struggle with so many things in our life. And, you know, I guess if if I wanted to, I could talk about the big sins. I could talk about adultery. I could talk about pornography. I could talk about all those things. And very likely, we will deal with that and have dealt with that. But it could be something as simple as smoking or drinking, or cussing, or a temper. When we're dealing with this area of victory over sin, it's not just the fact that I've overcome the sin that was taking me to hell and now I'm going to heaven. 
this is anything that controls me instead of God controlling me. And so it can be a very simple habit. I remember years ago I had to confess a Dr. Pepper habit. I just had to, I could not drink anything but Dr. Pepper. And I finally just said, Lord, you're going to have to take care of this. Now that's a simple, almost silly example, but it was controlling me. And I see some of you smiling and maybe some of you could confess your Dr. Pepper habit as well. If it's controlling you instead of the Holy Spirit controlling you, it's a problem. And you can't have victory in your life until that is done. In order to have power over sin, that thing which controls you, you must believe in another crucifixion, your own crucifixion. You must believe that when Christ died, you died. When he was buried, your old man was buried. And when he rose from the grave, you rose with him, a new creature, no longer under the domination of sin. It is not a matter of experiencing it. You must know it. It is not a matter of feeling it. You must believe it. It is not a matter of willing it. You must accept it. And having accepted it, you must act upon it. So let me put this in terms that most of us as Christians understand. When you were saved, there came that salvation uh, through the forgiveness of sin. So how did you know that you were forgiven? Was it because your pastor said... Say this prayer and you're forgiven. Was it because the Bible said that you were forgiven? Actually, Jesus Christ dying upon the cross is something that we accept by faith. We weren't there. We didn't see it. Our account is based upon what God's Word says, and faith, working through the operation of the Holy Spirit in our heart and our life, brings us to that place in which we know Jesus Christ died for me upon the cross. If I accept Him as my Lord and Savior, I will not go to hell. I will have Him and I'll have the forgiveness of sin. These truths, these truths, these told you the truth, the Bible, your pastor, but when you were saved, there comes for the first time a divine revelation in your soul, and you know that you are forgiven. It's like a great burden being lifted off your shoulder. This is why we often weep for joy when we come to salvation. Uh, The old song, you ask me why I'm happy, so I'll just tell you why. Praise God, my sins are gone. When you truly know that you are in Christ, you will know it because God speaks to your soul. This comes through a deepening, broadening, heightening of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When we come to know Him more, we know ourselves more and more. Just like salvation, victory over sin is not based upon what you can do. It is not based upon your will. It is based upon what Christ has done and it is based upon what you believe. If you know in your heart, when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that He died upon the cross for you, and if you accepted Him as your Lord and Savior, you would be saved. You know that. It's the same kind of faith that operates in your heart, same kind of faith that operates in your life on a day-to-day basis to give you victory over sin. That's not surprising. We walk by faith, not by sight. And yet in this area of, of fighting sin, we often think, I'm just not a good enough Christian to overcome this sinful habit in my life. I'm just not strong enough. I'm just not willing enough. The reality is it has nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with you. It has to do with Jesus Christ and you putting your faith in Him just the way you did at salvation. So let me illustrate this with a little story about a flashlight. This little flashlight that we'll call the ignorant flashlight didn't shine. He did not have the abilities that other flashlights had. And even though he hated the dark, he was always in the dark, for he could not act the way a flashlight should act. The flashlight often prayed to God. 
Make me a flashlight. Give me power to shine in the darkness and be what you want me to be. But God never answered his prayer. And so the little flashlight stayed in the dark, alone, afraid, and helpless. But one day, the little flashlight was visited by a wise old lantern. The wise old lantern always seemed to be bright for Christ. The little flashlight worked up his courage and then asked the great lantern, Why can't I be a great light like you? Why won't God answer my prayers to make me a useful flashlight in his service? The bright, wise lantern said, What do you mean? Do you have batteries? Do you have a bulb? Do you have a switch? The sad little light said, I do, but I've never tried them. Because I don't know if they would work. The wise light said, It's time you stop praying for what you already have. If you believe, then turn on the switch. The little light did, and shined for the Lord all the rest of his days. Many times in our life, it was this way in mine. It'll be this way again, to be honest about it. We're confronted with a sinful habit. God's word, the pastor's message, brings forward something in our life that says this needs to change. And it's such a part of us. It's so ingrained in us. We don't think we can do it. And so we go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me strength. Lord, give me power. Help me to overcome this because this is not the way a Christian should live. This shouldn't be controlling me. And it can be something very, very bad that we're scared to death our family or our church members will know about. And it may be something quite minor in the, in the eyes of the world, but something that we know is controlling us instead of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray those prayers over and over again. Lord, give me this. Give me the strength. Overcome this in my life. And the reality is God can't answer that prayer because He's already given you everything that you need in Jesus Christ. He can't give you what you already have. You already have the power, the grace, the strength that Jesus Christ gave to you when He made you His child. There is no one spiritually stronger than a child of God in this world. And we ignore that. Our problem? Unbelief. We simply don't believe that God's Word is true when it comes to us. We look at lost people and say, how could they be so foolish? But in our own lives, many times, it's the same battle, the same fight. We are being the foolish ones praying for something that God has already given to us. Let's go back to Romans chapter 6. So the first thing we must understand is that we have to build on this knowledge of us being in Christ. When he was crucified, I was crucified. When he was risen, I was risen. The symbol of baptism is the story put into uh, this outward example of the reality of I am in Christ. I must know this. The second thing is in Romans chapter 6 and verses 11 through 12. We must also reckon. Reckon. Romans chapter 6 verse 11. Likewise, in the same way, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Paul says, likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. This word uh, reckon in the Greek is not like the way we use the word reckon in Texas. Do you reckon it'll rain? (laughs) Do you reckon the cowboys are going to win? Do you reckon, you know, that's not the way it means. It means maybe so, could be, what do you think? This word in the Greek is the word logizomai, and it's the same word we get for a log. Uh, a ship's log, or in this case, an accounting book, a checkbook. It was an accountant's term, a steward's term. 
It's translated in the authorized version, think nine times, impute eight times, reckon six times, count five times, uh, suppose four times, uh, reason one time, number one time. It means simply this, to reckon, to count, to compute, to calculate, to count over. It was a word used by accountants, by stewards, people who ran homes and dealt with numbers. It has the same idea of someone balancing the books. It means I look at the outgo and I look at the inflow, and once that's balanced, I know then what action I can take. Just like with your checkbook. I have this much money going out, I have this much money coming in, and when I balance my checkbook, I know I can write a check for this amount because I have balanced the books. I know it's right. Paul tells us to reckon ourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Christ. He is giving us the outgo and the inflow. Through the death of Christ and my being in him, I am now dead to sin. The old man was crucified with Christ and buried. That is the outgo. That is the cost. That's what it cost God the Father, his own son, dying upon the cross for our sins. No greater cost has ever been paid for my salvation. Through the resurrection of Christ, I've been made a new creature in him. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is the inflow. Because of the cost that has been paid, the inflow is a new life. The Holy Spirit, I am alive to God. So what this comes down to, when I reckon it, when I balance it out, is simply this. This is the truth. This is the reality of the Christian life. This is what I can do because of what Christ has done and who I am in Christ. You must know it, but you also must reckon it. Reckon it is to take the action. It doesn't do you any good to balance your checkbook if you're not going to write the check. As a Christian, it does you no good to know all that Christ has done for you if you do not begin to act upon the truth and the reality. That is what reckoning is. It's an action word. It's not just a mental word. It means now, because I've done this, I can take this action. I can write the check. In this case, the check is a new life, power over sin. So the question is, will I act in accord with that reckoning? The problem is not in what God has done, but again, it is what I will not believe. I simply won't reckon myself dead to sin. I continue to let sin have power in my life. I indulge in it. I enjoy it. I think about it. I plan how I will do it. I do feel terrible after it's done. The Holy Spirit convicts before and after. But I still make allowances for it. I still find ways that I can set aside this little time to do what it is that I know is breaking my heart, breaking the heart of God. That sin controls me. It brings me to that place. Neither will I reckon myself alive unto God. I must reckon myself dead to that sin, but I must also reckon myself alive unto God. I don't walk with Him. I don't talk with Him. I don't listen to Him from His Word. If you looked at my life, you would not know that I believe there's an omnipresent God in heaven who will one day take me to live with Him in eternity. I don't act like it because I don't reckon it to be true. Imagine, if you would, that uh, there was a funeral in the church. Now, most of these are done in mortuaries now, but it used to be you had funerals in churches all the time, and some of the churches I've pastored, we've had some. So imagine if you were in that service and you have that uh, coffin down front and the service is about ready to start and just as it's about ready to start, you see the back doors open and the family of the uh, deceased walks in. And in their hands they have uh, fast food. Now, I used to use this illustration and say it was McDonald's, but of course nowadays we only go to Chick-fil-A. So imagine they have Chick-fil-A in their hands. 
and they'd take out a Chick-fil-A deluxe sandwich and waffle fries, and we might as well give them some Dr. Pe- oh, do they sell Dr. Pepper Chick-fil-A? I don't know. Probably not. Iced tea. Iced tea, which is the most famous thing at Chick-fil-A. And they walk down the aisle with this, and they open up the coffin, and they begin to stuff a deluxe Chick-fil-A sandwich into the mouth of the corpse. They tip the iced tea into his mouth. Now, we would look at that and say, that is abhorrent. That is crazy. What are you doing? He can't enjoy that. He's past that. He's dead to that. And what we see so obviously in the physical realm, we miss in the spiritual realm. The Bible says you are dead to sin. You, that old man that you used to be, you're that corpse. And it makes as much sense for someone to try and feed a Chick-fil-A sandwich to a corpse as it does for you to go back to the life that you had. Go back to the sin that you used to enjoy. You're not that person. That person was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. That person was buried with Him in the, in the tomb. That person is not there, and you are risen again, a new creature in Jesus Christ. And it is absurd for you to think that you don't have the ability to say no to sin. Because if you understand, if you know what Christ did, and you reckon it to be true, then you know you are dead to sin. I know it's easy to say, but it's faith. And faith is always something that, as you approach it, seems an insurmountable cliff. And then after you step over it, it seems like the most natural thing in the world. We must understand that that person is gone. And the sin that used to so control and dominate that person's life died with him. It passed away in the tomb and we are risen as new creatures in Jesus Christ. There's one more step. And unfortunately, many Christians have the knowledge of what Christ has done. They even can come to the place in which they understand that by faith they should be dead to sin. But they often don't take the last step that Romans chapter 6 talks about. And without that, the other two will be worthless to you. Go to Romans chapter 6, go down to the 13th verse. We must know, we must reckon, but perhaps most importantly of all, we must yield. We must yield. Romans chapter 6, verse 13 Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid... Know ye not that as to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that we were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanliness and to iniquity unto iniquity, Even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye now are ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it amazing when you put that verse in context? It almost takes on a different meaning. He's not talking about 
first-time salvation. He's talking about victory over sin. He's talking about this is the gift that God has given you with your salvation. You have victory over sin. It's the way you're supposed to live as a child of God. When I believe these truths, when God reveals them to my soul, then I must yield myself to God. The word here, this word yield, means to present myself before God. It's not the same as yielding to allow something to pass by or yielding to let something else take control. This word yield means that I present myself. And so, as a new creature that knows he can serve God because he has overcome sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I present myself before the throne of grace. Paul says in verse 17, We were the servants of sin, but now being made free from sin, you became, past tense, no doubt about it in Paul's mind, you became the servants of righteousness. You don't belong to Satan. Quit doing what he wants you to do. You have been given over to new ownership, therefore act like the servant of God that you are. That's not a a statement of bravado. That is a statement of faith. That is a statement of the reality of what God's Word says in Romans chapter 6. If I deny that, the only one I hurt is myself. Perhaps my family, depending on the kind of sin I continue to enter into. Perhaps my church. I must come to that place in which I understand these things to be true, and then I must yield myself, present myself before God. Of all the steps that we've looked at, of all the things that Paul has instructed us in, this is by far the most difficult. And I'll be honest with you, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin almost immediately. In fact, to be honest about it, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin before you sin. He tells you, you don't need to be doing this. You know it's not right for a child of God. And we can be convicted, and we can even stay in the pews, or we can uh, kneel to our bedside and say, Lord, forgive me, and God will forgive, absolutely. But until I come to that place in which I take these steps and I present myself before God, not just in the sense of forgiveness, but in the sense of God, I am claiming what your word promises, victory over sin. I am standing here before you as a new creature in Jesus Christ, and Lord, I will no longer be dominated by that old man of sin. I died, and that person's gone. And a new one has arisen to walk in this newness of life And until I come before God and present myself to Him wholly and completely, you will not have victory over sin. It can't happen in your life. With each step in my relationship with God, there must be an intensifying of the person of Jesus Christ. This must be followed with a time of coming before God, a time of yielding myself to God in a face-to-face, heart-to-heart meeting at the throne of the Creator. How many times have I allowed Satan to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory because I would not yield to God. I would not come before Him in prayer. I would not speak with Him. How can we call ourselves children of God when we don't acknowledge our need to be in the presence of our Father? How can we hope to grow and learn if we don't spend time with Him? And so the question tonight that you must ask yourself is, have you yielded yourself to God? Have you said, Lord, this body is no longer mine? It was purchased by Jesus' shed blood. This heart can no longer love the things of the world. It has been given a higher love. These arms and hands can no longer serve sin. They are instruments of righteousness. These feet will no longer go where Satan pushes. They will only go where the Holy Spirit leads. Take them, Lord, and take me. I dedicate myself to you.
that's not just salvation. We all must come to that place in which we acknowledge ourselves sinners before a holy and righteous God and accept His great and gracious gift of Jesus Christ dying for us. That's salvation. This is living a life in victory over sin. Now, I'd like to tell you that it's a one-time thing like salvation, but it's not. You will fight this, this battle over and over and over, and you must fight it in the same way that it takes place here. There is no sinless perfection. We're Baptists, not Nazarenes. We're a lot more realistic about the real life around us. You will fight this battle in the big areas of sin. You'll fight it in the little areas of sin, but it must be fought in the same way each time. This I know. This I have yielded. This I know. This I will reckon. And this I will yield. One more time coming before God and laying myself down at the foot of the altar and saying, God, I dedicate myself to you. It may be for the hundredth time. It probably needs to be for the thousandth time. But it must take place or there can be no victory over sin in your life. I want to just share some things with you, some dedications. I find great encouragement in some of the dedications that I found in my research from some of the great Christians of the past. Some of them you may not even realize were Christians. One of them is Florence Nightingale, the uh, woman who is world famous for establishing the Red Cross, famous for establishing nursing on the battlefield at a time in which they thought women shouldn't be on the battlefield. Do you know Florence Nightingale was an extremely strong Christian and she did what she did because of her belief in Jesus Christ. At 30 years old, she wrote this in her diary. I am 30 years of age, the age at which Christ began his mission. Now no more childish things, no more vain things. Now, Lord, let me think only of thy will. Years later, near the end of her heroic life, she was asked her life's secret, and she replied, Well, I can only give one explanation. That is, I have kept nothing back from God. Jim Elliott was a missionary who was killed at the very beginning of his ministry down in Ecuador by a band of Indians at that time called the Akau Indians. They could have picked up rifles as the Indians were attacking. They could have slaughtered them all, but they never reached for the rifles, and he and three other men were killed. He wrote this in his diary, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. My favorite, by far, is one that I keep in the flyleaf of my Bible. I often refer to it before a message is a dedication of Jonathan Edwards, the man who, along with George Whitfield, led the, led the Great Awakening in the colonial United States. If it hadn't been for men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, neither one of them Baptist, by the way, you would not live in a Christian nation. It's as simple as that. God used these men to bring about a tremendous revival and reclaim a nation that had very much fallen into sin before they arrived and led massive, massive, Revivals, And you wonder why God would use a Jonathan Edwards. I mean, he wasn't even a Baptist. God doesn't use anybody but Baptist, does he? <laughs> Listen to his dedication. I claim no right to myself. No right to this understanding, this will, these affections that are in me. Neither do I have any right to this body or its members. No right to this tongue, to these hands, feet, ears, or eyes. I have given myself clear away and not retained anything of my own. I have been to God this morning and told Him I have given myself wholly to Him. I have given Him every power so that for the future I claim no right to myself in any respect. 
I have expressly promised him, for his, by his grace I will not fail. I take him as my whole portion and felicity. Looking upon nothing else as any part of my happiness, his law is the rule of my obedience. I will fight with all my might against the world, the flesh, and the devil to the end of my life. I will adhere to the faith of the gospel, however hazardous and difficult the profession and practice of it may be. I receive the Blessed Spirit as my teacher, sanctifier, and only comforter, and cherish all admonitions to enlighten, purify, confirm, comfort, and assist me. This I have done. I pray, God, for the sake of others, to look upon this as a self-dedication and receive me as his own. Henceforth, I am not to act in any respect as my own. I shall act as my own if I ever make use of any of my powers to do anything that is not to the glory of God or to fail to make the glorifying of him my whole and entire business. If I murmur in the least of afflictions, if I'm in any way uncharitable, if I revenge my own case, if I do anything purely to please myself or omit anything that is a great denial, if I trust to myself, if I take any praise for any good which Christ does by me, or if I'm in any way proud, I shall act as my own and not as God. I purpose to be absolutely his. I doubt any of us have the eloquence of Jonathan Edwards when it comes to dedications. But all of us, in our own way, in our own words, in our own time, must come to that place in which we wholly and completely dedicate ourselves to God. I understand the fear. I know what it's like to think God might use you in a way that would scare you to death. Whether it be the mission field or the pastorate or maybe even just telling somebody else about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand the fear. But I also understand that if we're not willing to come to that place and yield ourselves to God completely then we can never have that victorious Christian life that God has given to us through the gift of His Son. It's yours. It is in your possession. Just like the little flashlight, you're not willing to throw the switch. That switch is called faith. It's held in check by unbelief. And it's held in check because we will not come to God in faith and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, wherever you want me to go, Lord, whatever it is that I need to dedicate before your altar today, I lay it before you. And Lord, I ask you to use and take me wholly and completely without hesitation and without reservation. Some of the most frightening words you can ever say to God. I know, I've been there more than once. And yet I also know that when you rise from that place and in that very real spiritual sense, you look into the eyes of your loving Heavenly Father, you realize this is what you should have done all the time. And there is no better place, there is no better feeling, there is no greater sense of God's purpose in your life as when you come to that place and quit asking God, what do you want me to do? And just come before Him and say, God, whatever you want me to do, I will do it completely and fully and wholly. I'm going to ask Brother Stone to come and stand here at the front. And I'm just going to close out very quickly by asking, what about you this evening? Now, I'm not worried about a great altar call. It sounds like you guys had... Uh, an outpouring already this morning. And so I'm not looking for anything like that. In fact, if I'm looking, then I'm already missing the point. But I have to believe that when God's Word is given, that same Word that promises us His Word does not go forth in vain will find its place that needs to be in your heart and life today. And so I'm going to ask you, first of all, do you know that you are in Christ? 
If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this would be your time. You need to build upon this foundation. You know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You know He died for you upon the cross. You know that when you accepted Him into your heart and life, He forgave your sin, and now you are His child on your way to heaven, and nothing can change that. You need to have that knowledge as the foundation for everything in the Christian life. And if you know that, then the next step is, will you this evening reckon yourself dead indeed into sin, but alive unto God? Have you ever pictured yourself crucified with Christ? We sing the song, we quote the verse, but the reality is you must see it in your life. You must see yourself there with Christ, nailed to that cross. You must see yourself taken down and put in that tomb. You must see yourself especially rising from that place and being with Him, a new creature in Jesus Christ. You must reckon it to be true. And once you reckon that to be true, then you must take the action that that knowledge, that reality calls for. And it's the hardest step at all. You must yield yourself to God. Will you do as Paul said, present yourself a living sacrifice to God, wholly acceptable, which is your reasonable service. You know why it's reasonable? Because that's what Christ did. He gave himself wholly for you. And so what else could be reasonable except to give yourself wholly to him? It's the hardest step, it's the most difficult step, but it is the step that you must take if you're ever to have the victorious Christian life that we all want as children of God. And so I'm going to ask uh, Brother Tim to come down and we'll have a quick song. And I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do. If you need me to raise your hands or ask who's doing this or who's doing that or what you want to pray for, then you're missing the point, and I am too. But if the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart, then in honesty before Him, please yield yourself this evening for whatever He wants to do. And in whatever way that takes shape, whether it's there at the pew or saying the prayer or even in the words of this song, simply give yourself wholly and completely to God. You'll never regret it. And the fear that you may be facing will be overcome in such a, a rush of the faith that you'll, be, you'll forget what the fear was ever about. So as we sing what number? 